This is Writing Excuses, Season 3, Episode 8, What Star Trek Did Right. Fifteen minutes long, because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Brandon. I'm Dan. And I'm Howard. All right, we've done a couple of these podcasts before. Um, This is where we look critically at a popular film or book and discuss what writers can learn from it. Note, this is not a review. We are not reviewing this and telling you why you should watch it. Um, We are theming our comments toward you as writers and helping you think critically about um, an episode or a movie or a book so that you can hopefully learn to be better writers. But we did pick a movie we liked. We did. We will always usually, unless, yeah, we're going to pick things (laughs) that we think you can learn from um, in a good way. Um, yeah. Things we should aspire to. Um, it, it otherwise, we're just saying, whining. Yeah, goes without saying that there's a spoiler warning for this yes. episode. This episode, um, we will spoil quite a bit. So let's get into it. We'll break this down as we've done before to plot, setting, and character. Let's start with plot. Um, what did the new Star Trek movie do well with plot that our um, listeners should try to emulate? It took our expectations and our understandings and used them against us. To surprise us. Okay. In what way? Yeah. Um, we went into this believing... Now, understand, this, this is something that uh, many writers won't have to deal with. The expectations of the audience going into this is, this is a prequel. This right. is where I learned how Kirk and Spock and Chekhov and all these people came to be. Right. And what they did instead was they said, we are going to focus on an event that changed the universe, changed right. history, because, and this is purely mercenary, we need to reboot the franchise because Paramount accidentally killed it. Okay. <clears throat> so, what can we learn from this? Now, our um, listeners are probably going to be rebooting a major franchise. Um, <laughs> no, but they may have expectations yeah. going into what they're scenes. writing. You're writing epic fantasy. Right. Um, there are... Tolkien-related expectations or Eddings-related expectations. And working with those, leading somebody... Not undermining them, but leading somebody somebody along and then surprising them by doing something that forces it to be different. I I don't know. I I can't think of an example, but obviously how Star Trek did it was they said, and there's time travel... And the following things have changed. Look okay. who's alive, look who's dead. Well, mm-hmm. one thing about that that I noticed that they did that I liked was they, they brought it up front pretty early. Um, yeah. Which, if our, our listeners are trying to twist a genre and do something really cool with it, um, one of the problems with that is you're going to have to expect your entire... The way that a lot of people try to do it. You expect your readers to read an entire book of the sort of thing that they don't like that looks cliched so that at the ending you can say, aha, I'm not cliched. Well, <laughs> there's a danger there. And you laugh, but I've seen published authors doing this. Um, you I'll know, talk there, to them. There's, yeah. there's an author that I won't mention mm-hmm. by name because I hated this book so much um, that totally did that, that yeah. pulled the rug out from under the end, and I just thought, I just wasted this my entire book reading yeah. this thing that just betrayed me at the end. Um, there's an author who's um, who I won't mention, but... Um, I was talking to this author, and they said, yeah, I'm totally shaking up the entire genre, and I'm, you know, I'm turning their expectations against them. And then I read the book, and they don't do that until the end of the book. And so what happens is 90% mm-hmm. of the book is me being forced to slog through a generic epic yeah. fantasy of the, the worst sort of kind that I never want to have to read again to get to this moment where they're... Remember, mm-hmm. people are And at the end yeah. of the book... The end of the book is not, 
a fun revelation or a satisfying denouement. The end of the book is, ha ha, I fooled you. Yeah, or even if it is a satisfying, the fact that 90% of the book was a slog to get through to get to that. Well, um, what, what, what that's doing is it means that the only readers who will get to your twist are yeah. the readers that didn't want it. Exactly. Because yeah. they're the ones who like the first 90% of your book. Right. Right. So we talked about one thing about Star Trek. Should okay. we jump Here, back Here's into another that? reason that their plot was so good is that it focused on character climaxes more right. so than on plot climaxes, than okay. on action climaxes. It, it's ostensibly the story of scary villain comes back and starts blowing stuff up. It's really the story of Spock and Kirk becoming friends. Yeah. And that's what when made events, it When events were conspiring audiences. to make them not be friends. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, and so it made that emotional connection, mm-hmm. which, you know, uh, depending on your genre, you may or may not want. I always wanted it in my books because I feel that action is only as valuable as your emotional attachment to the people. Characters need to drive the story, not yeah. the plot driving mm-hmm. the story. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there are genres where the plot drives the story. Um, so um, it's not a catch-all. Um, there are some great science fiction stories that you don't care about the characters. You're one of Now, yeah. my one complaint about the plot was that it it was oh yet another star trek movie in which there is time travel yeah, yeah. um that's hard to get away from except on the fact with the tangent my two favorite star trek movies are time travel ones so, yeah so <laughs> yeah um so it's a crutch that um makes good movies for them so yep um now you know anyway um anything else about the plot that we want to say um, I would say it was accessible to an audience who was not familiar with the series and tropes. Um, That's true. They did a really good job with the learning curve. Um, it was fairly straightforward. There yeah. were no, I'm trying to think if there were any big, you know, second act reveals, third act reveals that were surprising. Um, the, the appearance, even though we all knew it was coming, the appearance of old Spock was supposed to be one of those. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and That was telegraphed well that, enough that... It yeah. worked even though you knew it was coming. But it wasn't yeah. very, like, when he turned around in that cave and you said, whoa, even though you knew from the beginning he was going to... You know what? It didn't yeah. feel like a plot twist because it was a fanboy movement. Oh, my gosh, it's Leonard Nimoy! Right, but it was meant to be a plot twist. Right. And I think for the most of the audience who was... The audience who was not made up of Star Trek fans, which there were a huge number of for this mm-hmm. movie. If you've, if you've looked at the numbers, this movie made two or three times what the really successful yeah. previous Star Trek movies had made, which were great movies and very successful, this drew in double the audience. So half the people going to this movie had never seen a Star Trek movie, yeah. um, mm-hmm. is, or at least had never well, gone to one and, in a theater. And that's probably a comment that we, we need to make, going yeah. back to the, the first thing we were talking about of subverting genres. Mm-hmm. They didn't set out to subvert this so much as to expand it, yeah. you know, to make it mm-hmm. more accessible by adding stuff and, and taking out a few confusing things Rather than it would have played very differently if they'd gone in and said we're going to take Star Trek and totally mess it up. Um, I read an interview with J.J. Uh, Abrams where he said I was a little bit worried because we are using the Star Trek world. We're not pulling any punches. This isn't Star Trek light. Um, we are using still a lot of the technical jargon. We are using this pre-built world. But what they did right is what Dan said is that is they focused on characters and had a very shallow learning curve for the characters, even though the world has a steep learning curve which mm-hmm. drew us into them and let us enjoy, read, uh, enjoy watching the movie. Well, one of the tricks they pulled is uh, they started with the Cabbage Head character. Kirk, at the beginning, oh, yeah. uh, didn't know all of the technical right, jargon. Right, right. We, so, we had a, a Watson. Yeah, in some ways, we were able to learn with him. Okay, we're going to break.
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This week's Writing Excuses is brought to you by Stacy Whitman, a professional editor. Looking to take your finished manuscript to the next level? She consults individually with writers on submission packets and full manuscripts. For more information, go to her website at www.stacylwhitman.com and click on Critiques. And we're back. Um, character. Character. What did Star Trek do right? Focusing on character. You know, again, we went into this movie with some expectations mm-hmm. about who these characters were. And because, I say we, you've just pointed out that half of the people right. at this film maybe had never seen one of these. Uh, the For me, I, I thought I knew Kirk. I thought I knew Spock. Yeah. Being introduced to these characters and seeing how they developed and having it be believable. You know, a young McCoy who... Well, he's divorced and he's bitter. Yeah. That was fantastic. Hey. So what can our readers learn? For listeners. I always call you readers. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> they, prob- they probably read. Okay. Yeah. What can the people who read Nobody who also listen to our podcast, <laughs> what can they learn from that? How do they learn from that? Um, each of the characters, and this was par- partially helped by the fact that they were dealing with iconic pre-existing characters, mm-hmm. but each of the characters had very interesting hooks for the audience to latch on to. Okay. You know, here's the doctor who's bitter and distrusts technology. Okay. Here's, you know, the guy who has a weird accent and can't say his his Here's the the captain who is a bossy maverick. Mm -hmm. Here is the the, uh, aloof, driven by logic, you know, highly cerebral character. Yeah. And what they did was instead of starting, sorry, instead of starting with those... those, just those pre-existing conditions, they said, let's talk about how that happened, why that happened, why that's important. Mm -hmm. And we see those characters growing into that, or at least, you know, twigging it. And And that's how a good writer is going to need to do it. it, 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 They didn't start with those, but they didn't end there either. They didn't leave any of those characters as stereotypes. They just gave them identifiable hooks that, that we could all identify with and recognize who they were. Now, they did use a lot of... They weren't actually flashbacks, I don't think, at any point. But they served the same purpose, showing the the childhoods and the Mm -hmm. past of the characters, which kind of worked as flashbacks for us because we knew the characters. Act 1 was... Act 1 spanned 10 years. No, Act 1 spanned 18 years. Mm -hmm. 25. How old is Kirk when he gets... Is he 25? Yeah, Yeah. I think that's what... That's... You know, and maybe we should have talked about that in plot, but that's Mm -hmm. classic... You know, epic storytelling. They showed, yeah, your they hero showed a starts huge as a amount young of character boy development and, mm-hmm. and grows up to be the king. Yeah. When you, you talked about the character development throughout the movie, if we look at the iconic natures of the characters, I'll just focus on Spock. Uh, we see him, you know, learning logic at the expense of you know his passion and his emotions, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then we see him, you know, during the during the body of the action of the film, uh, his logic. He feels he feels bad when his logic you know right. fails him. He he maintains logic. He maintains that aloofness right up until the very end. Yeah. At which point, you know, when Kirk turns to him and says, 
I can't remember yeah, what it was. Something about his mom. That uh, no, it was no, it was the bit right at the very end where he says, uh, uh, you know, we should offer them, you know, offer to help them or something. Okay. And Spock's response is, I'm not feeling that way. Oh right. <laughs> and and we see that he has connected with his emotional side mm-hmm. again in a way that allows him to function because previously when he connected with it, he connected with it by losing his temper and his command. Okay. And so that was that. It was that character yeah. arc for now, Spock. Now, now you, you define Spock's starting point as uh, logic at the expense of passion. Kirk's starting point was the exact opposite, mm-hmm. passion at the expense of logic. He wanted to do whatever the heck he wanted to do, even if it was stupid, okay. and even if it would hurt him. Okay. And both of those arcs crossed each other as those characters you know, gave the best of what they had to the other one. So we're and talking reversals. Yes. Let the, um, actually, I think what we're talking about a lot here also... Listeners can, can learn from this is the characters are in conflict with themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, they are introduced and with each other. as a stereotype. And then, or, you know, as an icon, iconic. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, we yeah. see an them archetype. as stereotypes, archetype. as archetypical, yeah. And then they put them directly in contrast with themselves, directly in conflict with that archetype, um, which makes them a fascinating character because mm-hmm. they're they are against themselves. It, it created conflict within the character. Um, you know, Kirk obviously had to change. He had to learn more logic. He had to learn more self-control in order to become a good captain. Mm-hmm. And his, you know, that, that allowed the plot to work better because those two characters could butt against each other and help each other and change each other as well. Okay. All right. So um, we've only got a couple minutes left, but this is the one we probably want to talk the least on. How did the Star Trek movie use setting in a way that um, was helpful to the characters and plot? in a way that our listeners can learn from. Um, the Romulan ship was built absurdly so that you could have <laughs> balcony fights with no railings uh-huh. and large jumps. Yeah, and, um, and um, a big nasty ship that looks like Cthulhu. Yeah. Um, reaching out of it the Looks like the Shrike port. from yeah. Dan Simmons. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. the, the setting helped the learning curve significantly okay. because it did not take place entirely on spaceships. It started on planets with children on a farm. Okay. And so well, the non-Trekkies... Well, it did start with a spaceship. Uh, the, pl- well, yeah, the, the prologue. But then we went to, you know, a kid stealing a car in Iowa. Mm-hmm. And that gets non-science fiction people into your story much quicker if they have identifiable things. Okay. Okay. What else can we learn from the setting? Um, boy. <laughs> it's the Star, Trek, the Star Trek setting has been been iconic science fiction for 40 years. Right. The one thing I'd, I'd point out about it that changed is that the original Star Trek setting, uh, Roddenberry billed Star Trek to Paramount or Fox, mm-hmm. or whoever he originally was billing it to, yeah. as uh, um, uh, wagons, yeah. uh, what, you know, wagon, wagon train, train, wagon train to the stars. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Uh, Space Western, yeah. long before Firefly. Long before Firefly Western. was a Space Western. This was, yeah, wagon train, wagon train to the stars. And this new Star Trek did not hearken to that at yeah. all. It, you got the sense that the next movie, um, when and if they make one, would indeed do that with them flying off out into the great vast nothingness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, but see, I don't see that as wagon train to the stars. Yeah. I see that as Lewis and Clark. Uh-huh. That was what I envisioned the original Star Trek as, was Lewis and Clark. Roddenberry said he pitched it that way, um, and then was never intending to do it that way. Um, that's just how he, he was pitching it at a time when ninety yeah. percent of TV were big. was westerns. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the well, other there's things, a lesson to be learned there on pitches now, yes, isn't there? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one of the other things that the, the setting does in the movie is uh, it allowed them to 
put in really subtle hints to show the passage of time. Uh -huh. And I'm thinking specifically of, you know, the prologue scene that takes place of the a ship. long time ago. Yeah. The construction of the ship was obviously older. They had, mm. uh, I, re I remember the, the big kind of plastic things that hung down over some of the doors. Um, there was much more scaffolding and, and mm -hmm. uh, kind of bare bones structure inside, which they didn't have in the later ship. And those are little setting hints that they gave to show time has passed. Okay. Yeah. Well, we are out of time, um, and I'm scared at what kind of writing prompt we're going to come up with um, on a Star Trek <laughs> podcast, um, but I'm going to give it to Howard. Um, don't use the word ocelot. <laughs> Do not use the word spockadoodle-doo. Um, well, right. <laughs> that takes mine out. <laughs> um, uh, it's, uh, boy, write... At this point, we're writing Star Trek furry <laughs> fan fiction that's, in which Spock is a rooster. People, I don't want to give people a Star Trek writing prompt. No, that's good. Start with, start with iconic uh, Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. Start with those iconic characters and then make them your own characters with their own justifications. Okay. And Spock cannot be an elf. <laughs> or a rooster. <laughs> and now you're out of excuses. Go right. Go right. Please tell me you're recording. <laughs> I am. Okay. Spock a doodle doo. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know it's going to be a Star Trek episode. Oh, no. <laughs> well, that's our writing prompt. <laughs> oh, dear heavens. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storyteller's stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like... Do you want to do a one-on-one -on -one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus. 